0: It is August for Rule Breaker Investing, which means it's authors in August for my fellow Rule Breaker listeners. Last week we talked about game design with Jesse Schell. This week we go to a topic of just as much interest for me, but with a lot more ink about it, and that would be leadership. You know, leadership. The word gets tossed around in infinite contexts every day by people who May or may not even be using the same definition as the person they're speaking to in his essay, Politics and the English Language. George Orwell wrote that meaningless words, quote, do not point to any discoverable object, but are hardly even expected to do so by the reader. I leave it to you, dear listener, to determine whether leadership has become a meaningless Word today. If it is one such example, well, we're going to rein that in this week. We're going to be really specific. My guest, Les McEwen, author of the book Do Lead, has an incredibly prosaic and powerful definition which drives his book and all of his thinking, and frankly, now mine too. And I hope it'll be helpful for you and your thinking about a topic that is both so threadbare on the one hand, but also so important. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks so much for joining in with me and my pal, Les and I'm really delighted to share Les with you. Les is a longtime business thinker, actor, and author, and somebody who's been in and around The Motley Fool, giving us some good advice for the better part of really more than a decade right now. So I'm so excited to share with you Les McEwen and his book, Do Lead. We're going to get into that in a sec. I do just want to say, I hope you enjoyed Jesse Schell last week, The Art of Game Design. I was saying, as I did last week, I'll repeat this week, Not everybody cares that much about games. Most people I know definitely don't care as much about games as I do. And therefore, the topic of game design could arguably be even more niche than that. And yet, I really think, and I hope it came out of last week's conversation, Capital D Design, the principles of good design, which, yes, need to run through all of the best games being designed today, but also run through buildings, buildings, Uh, intellectual frameworks, companies, the list goes on. And so if you're a meta-listener and a meta-thinker, then you can take last week's short course on game design and apply it to many other things besides. Thanks again to Jesse for joining in. And before I get started with Les, I want to mention next week, our final author in August. I'm not going to say best for last. She's awesome. She is really great, but I love all my authors this month. But Candace Millard will be back to Rule Breaker Investing. She's written a wonderful book called River of the Gods, the true story for the great race, for the discovery of the source of the Nile in the 19th century. It is like each of Candace's books. I mentioned her actually in Books, Books, Books on August 3rd, the podcast that opened up this month. Authors in August, where I talked about some of my favorite books and authors. I mentioned Candace. At the time, I wasn't sure whether she'd be able to fit us in. She's been away a lot this summer, but the good news is she is. And Candace Millard will be on Rule Breaker Investing with you next week. And now without further ado, let's focus on this week's topic, leadership with Les McEwen, Les McEwen is the founder and CEO of Predictable Success. He first began to recognize recurring growth patterns early in his career as a serial entrepreneur in addition to being involved in the launch of more than 40 companies before he was 35 and less we need to talk briefly about that but let me finish my intro first he was at the same time a founding elder in a fast growing church while serving on the board of a number of charities and not for profits he then founded a successful business incubator which became a multinational he was increasingly struck by the similarity of issues faced by all growing organizations. And he began to codify that pattern recognition, that understanding, these repeating patterns of growth. And that led to his best-selling book, Predictable Success, getting your organization on the growth track and keeping it there. That book was in 2010. I think I read it in 2011. I think I probably read it again. I loved it. And I think I've known Les for more than 10 years now. He's certainly helped us out at The Motley Fool. Many of his concepts if there are lenses, those are the lenses we're wearing around Full HQ, Pans Ney, and we see things Les' way because he helped us do that. Les is the kind of man I should be having on this podcast at least once every four years. So it's time to welcome him back because, Les, you were last on March 21st of 2018. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing.
1: Thanks for having me back, David. It is great to be here. And hi, everybody. Yeah, and you were saying hello
0: from your country perch, it seems. You used to be a Washington, D.C. resident. Les, where are you these days-ish?
1: I am on the Eastern Shore in Maryland, and uh, I am a COVID emigre like so many people. Mm. I had a beautiful place in D.C., which I thought I'd never, ever leave, uh, but I used to you know, bail out at the weekends, because D.C. is a different place in the weekends than it is during the week. And um, I have found a beautiful little place up on the Eastern Shore. I look out over at Chesapeake Bay. And uh, when COVID hit, I, I sort of, quotes, got stuck here. And the, the the draw of D.C. sort of diminished. And I ended up buying a place and relocated here permanently. And I just love it.
0: Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And that, that has really been made possible, I think, by COVID. There are a lot of Horrible things that have happened in the last few years, but some amazing changes as well. And it seems as if a lot of our employees these days are not living where they were when they were commuting to our offices, sometimes driving an hour back and forth. So, Les, you and I, I'm, I'm dialing in for North Carolina today. It's a reminder that we really can, some of these jobs we can do from anywhere. Well, it's a delight to have you back to Rule Breaker Investing. And, Les, we're going to be focusing on your book, Do. Lead. Now, it's a 2014 book, and it's, it's on a topic that, to me, is a word that can be used to mean almost anything and everything, it seems sometimes, leadership. We're going to talk about that um, in connection with your book, but I wanted to start by talking about do books. Because I think a lot of Americans aren't aware of this series. I just thought, oh, yeah, Les has written a book called Do Lead, which I read and loved several years ago, reread it in advance of this conversation this week. And it said it's number nine, number eight or nine in the Do series. And that's, that caused me to raise an eyebrow. Les, what are the Do lectures and the Do books?
1: Well, as you uh, intimated at the end of the Do uh, do Books are um, really an outgrowth from something called the Do Lectures. And to compress that story, Do Lectures is an event that happens each year, and I'm going to pretend COVID never happened, so it's always happened each year, (laughs) slight break, uh, in the wilds of Wales. Wales is a bit of... uh, the united kingdom that sticks out to the left of england <laughs> and I do like to start by a wonderful wonderful guy one of the greatest entrepreneurs i know one of my very very few very few limited two or three uh, true heroes uh, in today's entrepreneurial world his name is david hyatt and uh, he makes world-class jeans denim jeans in uh, he's he's really brought uh, an old industry back to life uh, the town that that he does this in, in Wales was the center of jeans making and then died. And he has gone back and he's, he's brought back what he calls the old masters, the people who had learned that. And he's making these beautiful, beautiful handmade jeans. And wow. he started to do lectures, which are essentially Ted talks with sheep. That's, that's <laughs> basically what it is. You go out uh, to his massive farm. Uh, you live in a yurt for a few days and he curates, personally curates, Um, a panel of speakers each year across a massively wide spectrum of topics. And in fact, um, Motley were coincidentally uh, partially responsible for me speaking at Do Lectures way back in 2011. And the reason is this, that our good mutual friend David Allen of Getting Things Done fame had been asked to speak in the inaugural year of due Lectures, which was the year before ah. I spoke. And they asked uh, speakers to recommend speakers for the next year. And David and I had been talking, and we'd talked about Motley Fool, because I know you'd had him on your guest author uh, yes, indeed, volume, which... Which I then spoke at as well. And David and I have since become great friends. He became a client. We worked together. But he recommended me to do lectures. So long story short, went spoke at the do lectures, had a wonderful time. I've been back four times since just as a guest. I love it so much. And about the third or fourth year, so about 2012, I think, um, David hooked up with a wonderful woman, Miranda, uh, who Uh, had this idea of curating a range of books around selected do lead uh, do lecture topics and mine was uh, my first book do lead was selected uh, for that and they've now got a raft of about 35 36 books I believe in total and do is obviously this action focus it's these are slim books they're they're uh, literally made to fit in your jeans back pocket Uh, that you can read them in one sitting if you want to and so I wrote uh, do leaders you've mentioned 2014. And then in 2017, I wrote my second uh, do book, which is do scale, which is all about scaling your organization.
0: And it makes a lot of sense that uh, they would reach back out to you less, because these are topics that have formed the foundations of your career. And, it's my life's yeah. work.
1: I anyway, you, you, the listeners will have worked out from your introduction that I'm about 138 years of age. <laughs> and, you know, it, I'm very fortunate in, and I and I mean this, I'm not being glib. <clears throat> I'm very blessed in that. Uh, you know, in my case, my my life's work has genuinely added up to the point where it's two plus two equals a lot more than five. I I, I was so limited in my abilities when I was younger that I've only ever had one track. <laughs> i could go down Uh, i didn't have the the option to do a zillion different things so i ended up doing this i help leaders grow their organizations Uh, it's all i do and i love it and uh, as you say uh, the two books really summarize my life's work it's helping leaders grow yeah and just closing
0: it up on do books then before we move on for Americans, I, I, again, I had not, not heard of the Do Lectures in Wales. It, they sound lovely. They turn into books these days as well. I was likening it in my own mind to the Dummies books, um, this or that for dummies. And, and it feels a lot of Americans would know that that brand. It, it feels as if that's what's happening, except that these are t- even tighter, slimmer books, very focused on action. and uh, But otherwise, lovely branding, consistent from one to the next. And I'm delighted they reached out and asked you to write Do because I really enjoyed your book, lesson. And I think we need to get out of the way right now that you are not affecting a Northern Irish accent just to sound intelligent. Is that true or not?
1: Well, you know, actually, I'm just back from uh, visiting my youngest daughter uh, and my grandson. And one of the things that happens when I visit my family is they tell me to stop talking in this stupid American accent, as they put it. <laughs> Um so I'm stuck. I've been here uh in the I grew up in Northern Ireland, as you said. I've been here now 23 years. I'm a US citizen. I got my American citizenship 2016, I've got my US passport. Um, but my accent has decided not to fully relocate. So it's sort of stuck halfway halfway between everywhere. And uh, you know, it, it works, so I'll stick with it. It it sure does. Let's go
0: to definitions of leadership because since we're talking this week, that's our focus, leadership. Uh, how can we not think briefly of what did Drucker, how did Drucker define leadership? Or or Warren Bennis, uh, somebody whose book on becoming a leader I really enjoyed. Les, I'm talking to you mainly this week. Neither Bennis nor Drucker is still with us, but I thought it would still be fun to introduce their definitions of leadership. Before we go to someone, you, who likes to poke holes at the conventional wisdom that exists out there in the world, in this case this week about leadership. Warren Bennis said this, leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. If you were giving traditional uh, school marks to that particular definition of leadership, what would you give Warren Bennis for capacity to translate vision into reality?
1: Two. I guess we're going on a pan (laughs) scale, are we?
0: Well, I was thinking A to F, so two left me confused. Two out of ten. Two out of ten. So we'll give him a D minus. And and what 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 is what is tragically wrong
1: about that? Uh, well, first of all, Warren Bones is a, a, a fine man and uh, he, genius. Ninety percent of his stuff is, <laughs> is superb. Um, to to answer what's wrong with it, let me tell you why I wrote the book. I wrote the book not. Uh, I I am not a flamethrower. I'm not interested in just questioning conventional wisdom. And I spend most of my life being a complete rule follower. Uh, I live a very boring existence. Uh, If I'm told to do a thing, I'll do it. I don't (laughs) go around throwing flames. But the world that I live in depends on us knowing what we each mean when we talk about two important things one is leadership which we're going to, which we're going to spend our time talking about today the other one happens to be the word scale which has been equally you know uh, ruined of any genuinely shared meaning and that's why mm. I wrote do lead. but in do lead I work with leaders that's what I do so if I'm talking about leadership you're talking about leadership maybe I'm working with a full executive team we're all talking about leadership it, it it by and large is an is, one, is it's like that story you've heard about the four folks who are blindfolded and each led up to an elephant and they you know one of them grabs the ear describes this big leafy thing like a tree one of them grabs the trunk and another one grabs the leg and it's sort of like that. Um, so I wanted to bring a consistency of definition for yes. practical reasons, do books, right? So that we could then talk about it, knowing what we were talking about. The second thing is, I know we're going to talk about this separately in a minute or two, but there's so much ridiculous mythology baked into our concepts of leadership. And this is, as I'll share in a minute, is where I have a problem with Warren's definition, um, that it it really removes it from the world that most of us live in. Mm. It abstracts it into something that's aspirational and leadership isn't that. So I have a definition of leadership worked for me for 35 years. It is the most boring thing I'll say on this podcast. In fact, <laughs> we may have to issue an alert noise when I'm finished saying it to <laughs> waken our listeners back up again, because the rest of it's going to be worth listening to. But it's boring because it just happens to be true. And sometimes the bore, the, the truth is fascinating, and sometimes it's mundanely boring. I actually, I, I say this over and over again, brilliance is built on the mundane, brilliance is built on the mundane and here's something mundane which is my definition of leadership it's any act it's any act that gets a group of two or more people closer to their common goals just say one more time leadership is any act that gets a group of two or more people because leaders have to have followers they've got to be people you're leading closer to their common goals and that's it and that's why i have the the difficulty i have with was and it's pure warrant you know uh, who am i to to make these sorts of judgments the man but wrote 30
0: books on leadership less
1: right and on the content and all of those is great it just they happen to be based around the mythological definition oh the word vision oh the word translate you know yeah. if you BS. Yes, that is part of leadership. But we'll talk, I'm sure, about some of the myths behind leadership. And one of the myths is that the tip of the iceberg, the stuff that we read the stories about, the stuff that's fancy and flashy, that that's the whole of leadership. It is the most tiny little sliver of acts of leadership that happen every single day, and we just don't see them.
0: And to show my cards, I am bought in to the McCune definition of leadership. I The reason I'm featuring your book this month, Authors in August, is because I love what you've done. I, I agree with you. So, Bennis, who received a two out of 10, which is really, I mean, that's not a D minus, that's an F, that's, that's actually an F minus, I think. So, if you didn't like Bennis's definition, maybe because it's too high-minded and too restrictive, wow, I'm wondering what you're gonna give Drucker. Let's do this one, it's a little bit longer. Listen carefully, dear fools. Leadership, Drucker wrote, is the lifting of a man's vision to higher sights, the raising of a man's performance to a higher standard, the building of a man's personality beyond its normal limitations. End quote. Les, your, your, your grade marks for Peter Drucker's definition of leadership. 2.1
1: 2.1 because it's more, it's, and I, I, this is paining me more than anything because uh, Peter Drucker is uh, literally my touchstone, my lodestone. I think he's an incredible writer. The world is a lesser place without him. His stuff is superb, as you just read. The readers, have, even if you haven't read any Drucker, you know more of Drucker than you think because his cadences have just fallen into uh, organizational growth and leadership uh, vocabulary and he writes beautifully, as you just said. But here's the thing. Uh, if you and I were in uh, a building that was on fire, and somebody showed leadership, screw what you just read. out. <laughs> they kick they kick a freaking door open and we get out. Now you know. Now and I'm not going to ask you to do it, but now read Peter Drucker's definition. That it's it's a it's a very attractive subset that those of us who may have had the opportunity to occasionally do that will say yes of course it is and of course it is and those of us who read and are are, are force-fed those stories of you know the, the the football game that's won in the last minute by the fantastic play was the was the coach the genius for coming up with a strategy or was the QB the leader for making it happen and what about the two hundred and fifty-seven tiny little acts of leadership that, if they hadn't have happened before the last-minute mm. hail mary, the last-minute hail mary would have been pointless. Yeah, because you're only one point behind because of all that other stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Warren's definition, Peter Drucker's definition. Anybody else you're going to, you know? Get us a lawsuit from their estates. <laughs> from all of their definitions are great, but they're a tiny little, highly attractive subset of the boring, mundane generality of leadership, which we have to recognize because if you can't build it in your organization, if you want to depend on people doing that thing that you read out to scale your organization. You are screwed because you have people at the front line dealing with your customers and your clients and you know your congregation day and daily who are in the daily equivalent of a building that's on fire. And the customer whose plane just got delayed just wants the door opened. So there's that they no can get there's on. no
0: time less. There's no time for the lifting of a man's vision to higher sites and the raising of a man's performance. To a higher standard, we're having fun here. Let's move yes, in.
1: Yes, sure I'm, not saying there, I'm not saying there isn't a place for that, David. I'm just saying that's not all of it. Right.
0: Having read your book, I know that you respect that. You recognize that that is leadership. And it, and it's, it's heroic leadership. It's just that heroic leadership isn't all of leadership. And that's where we're headed next, Les. So, the first four chapters of Do Lead, and it's an eight-chapter book. As you said, it fits in someone's back pocket. I recommend this book to everybody. The first four chapters have you playing the role of the capital F fool, something that every one of my listeners would recognize is complimentary from me because capital F fools challenge conventional wisdom, find something better, and share that out. They We break the rules, and that's I think one of the reasons I love you, Les, is because you're a fellow rule breaker. So the first four chapters of your eight-chapter book, you're simply taking shots at what everybody else thought about leadership. In chapter one, we've just covered it, but I'll give you an opportunity to speak to another minute or two if you'd like to. Myth number one, chapter one, if I'm summarizing, the concept of leadership, you wrote, has been hijacked by the media and represented as meaning. Heroic leadership.
1: Yes. And uh, I, I pinpointed to a pretty precise moment when what had, was already happening uh, turned into a trend that engulfed our ability to, uh, to really see what true leadership is. And it was the first Iraq war, uh, which some of us are old enough to remember, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, what we call uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in our uh, yes Western Olympic World, the first Iraq war, there were many wars before the but the George HW Bush uh, Iraq war. Um, uh, one of the things you that um, you may recall uh, some of our older listeners will recall is that was the coming of age of CNN. CNN really uh, came to fruition at that point because it was perfect for 24 hour rolling news, which we really didn't have uh, in any substantive uh, sense until then. And that then you add that to the growing impact of the internet, and now we have this insatiable need for wall-to-wall gripping stories. Before, there was a newspaper, and it had only so much print, and it had to have classified ads in it, and it had to have the sports news, and I had to have this. So there were a few big you know, stories. Now, everything's got to be a heroic story. It's got, everything's got to have an arc. And as our friend Donald Miller would tell us in Story Brand, arcs are hugely compelling things. So we've got to have an arc. So what happens then is we tell the stories of all of the things that our definitions refer to, and they're great. Who doesn't want to hear about Sully? You know, you remember the the Hudson bringing the plane down, Captain yeah, Sullenberg? In the Hudson River. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who didn't want to watch a movie with Tom Hanks doing something incredible? And it's all super. But it is, and, and, and dear listeners, I'm making a, a triangle with my fingers. It's the very, very tip of the iceberg of what leadership is. Most leadership is not Heroic. And if you only ever reward heroic leadership in your organization, you won't grow the way you want to. So that was the first myth that that leadership has to be heroic. It doesn't have to be. And I give an example in the book where I talk about in the day that I wrote that chapter, I just go through the first four leadership stories that are in my median churn at the time. And it's that. It's heroic arcs of people doing remarkable things, all of which is great. And then I sat down and thought. As I was writing that evening, what were the four first leadership acts I encountered that day? And there were ridiculously mundane things, like my wife who worked with me at the time, my ex-wife who worked with me at the time, maybe those two things go together, I don't know. Um, Uh. She gave up the use of her car because mine was in the shop so that we could get to a client presentation. That is somebody helping a group of two or more people get closer to their common goals. Your definition of leadership? As a client I would I talked to who suddenly realized that maybe she didn't need to interrupt every time she had a great idea when she was talking to one of her direct reports because they might have a great idea. It's a very mundane thing. It's an act of leadership. Because it's helping two or more people, she and her direct report, get closer to their common goals. So I talk about the mundanity of leadership and how it is fantastic. I give this story of a barista in a Starbucks that I worked at, uh, that I I wrote most of the book at, and I would watch him. And, you know, he would do the most mundane things. But that was a well-run Starbucks because of the mundane things, not the splashy stuff.
0: Yeah, somebody leaves a a leaves a cup on a table, and he jumps out from behind the bar and grabs the cup, tosses it, cleans the table real quick with a swipe, and he's back making coffee.
1: And everybody has a better experience. So everybody gets closer to their common goals. The staff have a better time, closer to their common goals. The folks in the in, who are using the Starbucks have a better time. The customers, closer to their common goals. That's what leadership is. And if you can, and we'll talk, I'm sure, a little bit about how you can make this happen in your in any organization. If you can get your folks to see that, that leadership is not necessarily heroic, it then leads us on to looking at some of the other myths. It's not necessarily elite, and it doesn't have to be something you do with a title, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about.
0: Yes, I am. In fact, um, well, we're going to move on to to myth number two, chapter two. But I, I do just want to say one more time, Les' definition of leadership. It's helping any group of two or more people achieve their common goals. Bam, that's it. Helping any group of two or more people
1: achieve their common goals Can I pull you up a little on that? It's not even that sweeping, David. It's any act that gets two or more people closer to their common goals. It doesn't have to be the completion act. It doesn't have to be the thing that makes it happen. If you do something that helps two or more people get closer to their common goals, you're, you're doing a project launch, right? And somebody's got to go and look up a whole bunch of words because you're doing it in a language you don't understand, that you're not too sure whether or not you're using the right words or not. Somebody comes back, they've Googled the whole thing, got it all done. That's a not-so-random act of leadership that got you closer to your common goals. Is the launch done? No. But it was a not-so-random act of leadership. Well said. Thank you for that. And let's move to the second
0: myth, and that is, well, chapter two, you've entitled the four leadership styles. Now, for those who remember my back catalog, who remember Les appearing on the show four years ago, we talked some about these four leadership styles, and I know you're going to go there. uh, So for some of us, we'll rehear the story of the visionary, the operator, the processor, and the synergist. These are four very important we could call them business personality types. Actually, really what they are is their leadership types, styles. Um, but specifically, the myth you're going after in chapter two is that to be a leader, you have to be a certain type of person. We might even call, call that person a, a, a swashbuckler, Les.
1: Yes. So the chapter on the four styles is, a, is an important and necessary detour. It doesn't uh, give us much of a through line to where we're going to go, but it's a really important detour uh, specific for this reason. And I did not see this early on in my career. I had both these things going on. I was working with these four leadership styles, which I'll very quickly go through in a second or two, and I'm working out what the definition of leadership is. And I hadn't really made the connection I'm about to, con- uh, to make, but uh, it, it reflects back on our heroic thing again. So these four styles, which... I just, I didn't make them up. I just put words to things that happened. This is just how it is. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not pushing anything that I developed, you know, no interns were used or harmed in, in this. It's just <laughs> what happens. And the the listeners, if they've been in any organizations and any businesses of any size, they'll have seen all of these styles. they would probably just call them different things. So the four styles real quickly are, we have the visionary, the easiest one to imagine, big, Sweeping thirty thousand feet, swashbuckler types—they're the ones that typically found organizations because they've got a high-risk profile. They're prepared to take risks. They see things, visionary. You know, they want to make this this stuff happen, and it's the visionaries who are there typically at the outset. As I say, they knowing themselves, you know, again, if they don't even use my terminology, they'll still know, you know, I can do the dirty fingernail detailed work, but it didn't really turn me on. So they typically very early on in any business's growth, go find themselves, some of what I call operators and operators second style visionary goes finds operators because operators just go through breeze block walls. They just make stuff happen. They go in a straight line. The only thing they're interested in is completion. So we've got our visionary as a starter, got our operator who's the visionary. Uh, sorry, the finisher. And between them, that's great. And the early, uncompl- relatively uncomplicated stages of growth. That's all you need: visionary with a with an orchestra of, of operators. Visionary. Monday, back from a conference, three brilliant ideas, there got a boss, go make it happen. Then you reach a more complex stage of growth, not talk in any detail about all of that. But at some point, you need to bring a third style in, which I call the processor style. And the processor is not about all action. The processor is about how do we codify this? How do we standardize this? How do we make this replicable, repeatable? How do we give this consistent quality? None of which you need to care about really that early on because just sheer force of effort does all of that by tap dancing like crazy, the vision and the operators are innovating and improvising and somehow making it happen. And then we get to a size we can't do that anymore. We've got to put systems in place.
0: you got to bring in the accountants. you got to bring in the HR people.
1: HR, quality control, legal, all of the stuff that will help you do this right. Warehouse uh, managers, you know, people that uh, you know, sit down and, and plan out the, your layout of your office. It's just simple stuff, but what's needed from systems and process. Now, here's the thing. For the very first time, our leadership styles don't gel. Visionaries and operators can finish each other's sentences. They build a lot of sweat equity. They work hand in glove. Processors aren't really that... They're not as typically as evangelical about, you know, pleasing the customer and wowing and going fast, 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 fast. Processors want to go slow, do it right. They want to measure twice, cut once. And so there tends to be a bit of a conflict. And this final bit was the one that took me the longest to uh, really see In businesses, organizations get to the stage I call predictable success, which is essentially the ability to be able to put your foot in the accelerator and make the car really go forward, to be able to scale. A fourth style, a learned style. The other three styles are natural. They're native to us. A fourth learned style sort of emerges. We work this out. I call it the synergist style. And what that basically says is, if we keep trying to just pander to the visionaries, we're going to go crazy. We keep pandering to the operators. Everybody's going to leave because they're just so ruthless. If we pander to the processors, we're going to die because we can't have more and more and more systems and processes. We need these three as a brain's trust to make the best decisions for the business as a whole. And so this synergist style emerges that says, I don't have to scratch my visionary itch. I don't have to scratch my operator itch. I don't have to scratch my processor itch all the time. When we're talking about non-trivial things for the business, we'll do what's best for business. Now, with all of that, Here's the point. Here's why this is important for what we're talking about. The visionary style gets the press. Elon Musk does. Elon Musk get some press? Uh, it's, you know uh, that we we we're, we're, we have to talk about Steve Jobs. It's still uh, you know it's in all our contracts. We've got to do that. Got to talk about it. You talk, you look at any leader. That gets the you know the column inches, the, the internet yards, the you know, the 24-hour coverage, they're typically visionary leaders because they're incredible to watch and they build a story arc and they all do that heroic thing. Next come the operators, because they, you know, that's the movie that gets made about pulling the, the victory from the jaws of defeat at the very last minute. And our processors. When did you ever watch a really gripping movie about an architect or a CPA <laughs> right? You know, and the synergists sometimes will be in a B-roll in the movie. You know they're there in the background, keeping the team going, exciting them. But the reality is that the acts of leadership that we need have to come from everyone everyone you can't turn everybody into a swashbuckling visionary and if you do you'll kill your business what you've got to do instead is find a model of leadership a definition and a way of talking about and rewarding it that encourages the operators processors and synergists to make not so random acts of leadership every minute of every day that way you beat your competition hands down so that's where chapter two comes in now on a final note there's a whole other book about all of that. It's called The Synergist, and that's all it's about. I wrote it, nothing about the VO, but, but nothing but the VOPS styles. So, listener, if, if if your ears are tickled with all of that and you really want to get the, the bee's knees on it, it's my second book, which is called The Synergist. Speaking of the
0: bee's knees, by the way, I think there's a do book called Do Beekeeping. I mean, I, yep. the do books are doing everything these days.
1: Do. You can live your life out of do books. There's do bread. <laughs> you make bread. Uh, there's do grief. I think it's called Do Grieve, which is wow. you know how, how to grieve people. Yeah. It's a fantastic series of books. It really is.
0: And a reminder that we're living in a world with many abundant choices and always new things coming along. Did you notice this month that ESPN is now broadcasting the Excel Championships? And I'm thinking, you said, Les, they've turned Excel into a competitive sport. And you were saying, has there ever been a movie about a processor leader? And I'm thinking maybe the story of the Excel no. Championships – It
1: could be. It could well be. You you might be right. That might be the first.
0: So chapter two, and we're going to move to chapter three and four now, but chapter two is really laying down the track that you just gave us, those four styles. It's a reminder that there's not a single type of leader, uh, Elon Musk or Howard Schultz from Starbucks or Steve Jobs or the list goes on. Winston Churchill. There's not just, those aren't the only leaders. And for a lot of us, that's an eye opener.
1: If all we had was Winston Churchill's, we'd have lost the war, right? (laughs) If all Apple ever had was Steve Jobs's, we wouldn't have heard of them, right? You can't just have that. But because they're usefully used for PR purposes, don't confuse that with the need for leadership throughout the whole organization.
0: Mm, Thank you. And well said. And of course, it's there uh, in black and white in due lead. I want to move forward to myths three and four. Just put them both out there for you to speak to. And just in case my dear listeners are thinking, all we're going to do is blast myths. No, we're going to follow that up with a real coaching on leadership and how to identify it in your organization. This is Les's life, life's work. He's an executive coach. He's a business consultant. He's done. By the way, I think something I appreciate about you, Les, is that for my own approach to investing, I've developed my own frameworks based on my own pattern recognition and then just try to share them out to the world. So I think you and I um, have have a similar approach. A lot of startups and then venture capital that identifies those startups based on patterns and pattern recognition. So I think systems thinking is obviously a topic we may not even touch on it this week, but it's something that re- that's important to both you and me. Well, Miss three and four are Myth three, that you can only lead from the front. And myth number four, that leadership is only revealed at times of crisis. Now, you'd be the first, Les McEwen, to say leadership does often happen from the front, and great leadership can indeed be revealed at times of crisis. But these are romantic, Hollywood-inspired versions of leadership missing the 98% of it that actually wins wars. Right.
1: Well, let's let's take the first one David which is the, the this myth that again has built up and it, it, come, it it's it, it comes along with and is is intimately linked to the notion of leadership being heroic. Uh it, w- which then sort of begins to pull out p o o l into well leadership has to be something that's done by people who are acknowledged as leaders If its this great heroic thing, then only the generals get to do it. You know, only the pilot gets to do it. Only the quarterback gets to do it. Only the C-suite get to do it. And, you know, if you want to run your business like that, good luck. Good luck. Because if the only people who get to lead in your organization are you and your colleagues in the C-suite, whether it's two of you or 22 of you, you're going to be pulling a very big rock uphill. And not only that, when the rock starts to slide, you're the one's going to have to run around the other side and start to push it back up. Mm. You'll never get to take a vacation, really. And you will become the, the the cap to your own growth. And you know, we see that. I mean, let me take a swipe at something that's such an easy target. I, I, I'm i going to apologize in advance. And I, and I say it with love because I'm part of it, the introduction um, that you gave, when I say what I'm about to say, you'll see where it can come from. I work with a lot of faith-based and cause-based organizations. And a lot of churches, sadly, are a walking example of this. The only leaders are the ordained pastors or the people who are in the pastoral group. The same things happens in not-for-profits, where this notion that leaders leadership is only uh, exists when it comes with a title. And here's the way it is, Really is people who have the title have to lead, right? You you got the title, you're getting the big bucks, you better step up, right? I take that. I'm not saying that uh, leaders get to abdicate. Formal leaders do not get to abdicate. But it's a very construct, constricting definition of that's all you work with. If you want to genuinely scale your organization, have people who are fulfilled, get the best out of everybody, do things that are revolutionary, You've got to beat that mindset and, and make sure your folks see, and it's all based on the definition. If leadership is as it is, not as I believe it is, as it is, it isn't it? But just because I said it or wrote it in the book. It is what it is. <laughs> leadership is any act that helps two or more people get closer to their common goal. That means anybody can lead at any time. Somebody can see a thing. Now, we're going to come back in a moment. I, w- I don't want to finish this section without talking about the huge need for alignment, for this not to be random mm. purposeless stuff, right? I'll come back to that in a second. But if our leadership definition is any uh, any act that gets two or more people close to their common goal, every member of a project team can... can Execute a not so much random act of leadership. You know they can step in and help with something. Go get a glass of water for you know somebody who needs to spend another twenty minutes working at this thing. Can't get up off their seat. You know, go find the paper for the photocopier. Not so random act of leadership. Getting us closer to our common goals for the project, the team, the division, the department, the organization as a whole. Second thing that 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 flows from that. It's part of the same topic that we're talking about. Is that means. Leadership doesn't need to be permanent. It can be a temporary, momentary thing. Because you step out and, 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 and you do a not so random act of leadership, doesn't mean to say, oh, oh no, 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 I've got to be a leader. Like the, the barista we were talking <laughs> about was a guy, I, I got to know him a little bit. Last thing he wanted to be was a store manager. He didn't want any title. That didn't stop him from making not so random acts of Such leadership.
0: Such a great. And it's a reminder, what you're doing, Les, is you're democratizing leadership. It's leadership for the rest of us, all of us. Uh, We're all leaders. It's sometimes a a, a cliche. Um, You and I, before we started our conversation offline today, we talked about how we're a little bit tired of things like uh, vulnerability. We understand the importance of it, but it's getting overplayed, I think, the card of how important it is to be vulnerable. And leadership itself has lost a lot of its meaning because it's used too many different Ways, but what you're doing is, I think you're reminding us of something else. I'll sometimes hear, which
1: is that we're all leaders. I'm going to push back a little bit on that, David, in that I'm not saying that this is like uh, you know everybody gets a merit medal. The green participation ribbon that I would receive for participating in things that I didn't win. What I'm saying is that if you do your work, <laughs> you do your. If you're interested, there are a lot of people not interested in showing any acts of leadership. Fine, you know, I, I, I. I bump into people like that and that's you know don't want to do it just want a quiet life
0: they're not going to read your book they don't not everybody needs to read this book
1: they're not going to listen to the podcast you know they just want a clock in a day and i'm not going to make any value judgment about that that just is what it is so i'm not going to say everybody's necessary leader and secondly there are some people who if they just adopt that uh you know uh, mantra in and of its own are going to do an enormous amount of damage i'm not saying everybody should i'm saying everybody can so all you've got to do is, is recognize. Uh, well, first of all, you've got to be working in an environment that encourages this, and we might talk about it before we're finished. Um, but if you if, if you're going to run an organization where this is encouraging the scene, you just got to do the work to make sure that you that you're doing stuff that's aligned. You got to know what the common goals are. You can't just decide I'm going to go make everybody coffee. That could be the last. You can't decide. I'm going to find the photocopier paper. That could be the last thing that needs done here. You got. You got to do your work. You got to know what your common goals are. You got to think through. Does this get us closer to our common goals? And if so, go do it. And it doesn't mean that uh, it. It doesn't have to be permanent. It can be a temporary, single, one-off act. So what I talk about is building uh, a culture of not so random acts of leadership that people can step up to if they wish.
0: And I really appreciate that. We're about to reach an important phrase for you, Les McCune, enterprise commitment. That's where we're headed as we talk about Uh, what real leadership is every day and that we can all participate in. But before we go there, you you were alluding to something that was really important in your book. I can't remember which page. It might have been chapter three or four. But you're talking about effective leadership. So to quote the author back to himself very simply, effective leadership is goal-oriented, not people-oriented. And I have to admit, as I read that and as you talk a little bit more about it in that chapter, I was thinking, you know, I think that's a mistake I'm making. A lot of the time, I'm sort of a pleaser and I want everybody to have a good time. And and so if if you're on my team, we're going to have fun. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have fun because I am purposing fun. But you're helping remind me that if I want with Drucker to raise my own performance to my highest standard... Then I need to be more
1: goal focused than just people focused, right? Right, and that part of the it's a subset of the definition that we're given that leadership is goal focused because you know we've said it a hundred times now. It's all about helping people get closer to the common goals. And when when I then add the bit, it's not people focused. Mm. There's always uh, it's the area where I get the most pushback, and I understand it. Let me uh, be clear about what I mean. Sometimes the goal is to help people, right? You know, sometimes the goal is to help people. But how that happens depends on what the overall goal is. We're in a burning building. I don't want you trying to find out how I feel about it before you kick the door open, right? We can do that later. If we're a team that have had four losses on the road in a row, part of the goal may well be to come in and sit and talk with the team and and motivate them and encourage them and get them all up and going. But singing kumbaya together is not enough. But also, (laughs) be honest. Why are you doing that to win the next game, right? Now, there's a separate thing. It's called mentorship. And if what you want to do is just help people and you don't want to be constricted by goal, delivery, be a mentor. And you can be both. You can be have an overlap. But I meet a lot of leaders who really struggle with embracing leadership as goal-oriented, which it has to be. That's why you're leading these people to get somewhere. And what I say is, that's fine. That's a, that's a wonderful, noble sentiment. But engage in mentorship, because that, that moves a little away from direct goals and says, how can I just help you? As a person, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not leadership. It may sort of lap in there. It may overlap. It gets all a little woozy. But leadership has got to be goal-oriented. It's what you're there to do. It's to deliver what you're there to do. And that can be as high-minded or as low-minded as you want.
0: And it's just entirely consistent with your definition of leadership, which is helping any group of two or more people make progress toward their common goal. So it really is that goal orientation and a a people-focused person like me needs to respect that and keep that in mind for me to be my best leader. Well, I did mention the phrase enterprise commitment. That's where we're headed. And then let me just, well, I'm going to quote the author back to himself once more, but this is a phrase I've introduced to any number of of M- Motley Fool employees as they start in their first few months at the Motley Fool. I I said, There's this friend of mine, Les McCune. He wrote this wonderful book called Predictable Success. And by the way, for anybody who's enjoying this conversation this week, predictablesuccess.com is Les's website. You can even, looks like I can get a free consultation with you, possibly, Les, if I click a certain button on your, your website. So that's how you find Les and find more here. But I, I, I say to these new employees, my friend Les has observed. Dozens and dozens of startups. And he saw the ones that failed, and most do, and he saw the ones that succeeded, and he said, you know what characterized the ones that succeeded more often than not? It was that people at that organization were always working, not just for themselves, or for their boss, or their team, or their division. They were looking and thinking across the entire enterprise as They made their decisions and took their actions one day to the next. It's not possible to keep that top of mind all the time. But to quote the author now, when working in a team or group environment, I will place the interests of the enterprise ahead of my own. Les McCunes, enterprise commitment. And the more organizations that have people saying that, the much more likely for-profit, not-for-profit they'll succeed. They'll predictably
1: succeed. Yeah, the enterprise commitment is really the other side of the coin to our leadership definition. It literally, literally is not right because it isn't the other side of a coin, but it's metaphorically (laughs) the other side of the coin of the definition of of leadership. Uh, And uh, let me just put it quickly in context. So the enterprise, repeat it again, the enterprise commitment, uh, just to repeat it one more time, when I'm a group of two or more people, so that means... If I'm on an email chain, if I'm making a comment in Slack, if I met somebody outside the water cooler, doesn't mean just if I'm in a formal meeting, round a table, all that sort of stuff. If I'm doing anything where I'm interacting with other people, alert 98.888% of the time you spend at work. Then I'll put the interest of the enterprise, you know, the business, the organization, the church, maybe the project, the division, the department, whatever I'm engaged in at the moment. I put the, that, the interest of that thing ahead of my own. Now, a lot of folks, particularly our synergist leaders, be saying, really what? You get paid to write that down? That's, is that not just... Or people who are in the early stages of growth, in early what I call early struggle or the fun stages of growth, will say, really, you got to write that down? Because at that stage, life is so existential, Mm -hmm. That, you know, the the existence of this business is so much at stake nobody thinks any other way. And the notion of writing it down would be like back then trying to design an org chart. You'd say, are you crazy? We just do (laughs) the things that need done. But eventually at that stage of growth, we talked about where we've got processors coming in, we've got complex systems. You know, this whole thing has got complex. At that point, the sort of clear cut definition between what's best for the organization as a whole and what's maybe, you know, either mm. random or best for me begins to blur. And so what we're saying is, is this, okay, here's our definition of leadership. You're going to put, you're going to use this throughout the whole organization. It's any act that gets a group of two or more people c- closer to our common goal. So, you know, a lean team could put that up, you know, a, a, an act of leadership is any act that gets us closer to our lean goal, whatever that may be. Now, the best folks who will respond to that will say, okay, how do I best do that? It starts by say, by recognizing you've got to understand and commit to what the common goals are, and that's where the enterprise commitment comes in. The enterprise yeah. commitment says, okay, you know, it's so to give our dumb little, dumb little, dumb little examples, you know, if you say you're there with a group, they're all working like hard, and you just want a you know, a box of 12 donuts, and you say to everybody, hey, what do you want for coffee, going for a coffee run, going for a coffee run, that's not a not so random act of leadership. That's not the enterprise commitment. You just want your 12 box of donuts. Now that's fine, the world won't end. go, you know, go get your donuts. Uh, don't even bother people with coffee, just go get what you want. But that's not <laughs> an act of leadership in our definition. If you see everybody's working like crazy, and they're all down for a coffee, and you've got five minutes, and you say, I'm going to go coffee run. What can I get you? That's a not so random act of leadership because the enterprise commitment kicked in. You're looking mm. at your team and saying, what's best for the team as a whole? Sustenance. <laughs> You're quite right. Well, sustenance is always good to some extent, but it's even better when it's, com- when it's contributing to the enterprise commitment.
0: Absolutely. And that's a great example because it's such a mundane thing, but you can see in one context, it's, it's arguably self-indulgent and by the way, not very healthy. On the other hand, it's actually exactly what the team needed to get them moving forward. So thank you for that, Les. You know, I feel as if it's now incumbent upon us to give a short course. Um, I, I, I have, as a fellow Fool, I've had you aiming and taking down the conventional wisdoms here, Les. But, and of course, you've done a wonderful job and here we've, we've alighted upon the enterprise commitment you are an executive coach. You are a consultant. Um, could you give us the one to two minute Newt Rockney leadership speech that doesn't celebrate heroic leadership, but what have I missed so far in our conversation? What gaps do we have that you can give a, a little bit of a talk to for our listeners?
1: Well, the, the I wrote Do Lead, as I think you said at some point during our conversation, really for anybody in the organization. But- It's one thing for somebody in an organization to pick up a copy of Do Lead and read it and feel, ah, I get it. I see how I can contribute and maybe even think, oh, that's what they were talking about. And I don't necessarily mean that the owners of their business or the C-suite or whoever had read my book, but that they have this culture. Uh, And I'll talk about the specifics of what's involved in that in just a second or two. The other thing is what I, I, I get. You know, you know, genuinely heartbreaking emails like every month from people say, I've read this and that's all I've ever wanted to be able to do. I don't particularly want to be the CEO, but I want to be in an environment where my ideas are valued, where I can do something I think is making a difference, even if it's in a small way, even if it's in a, it's in a you know, non-heroic fashion. But the place I work, never going to let me do that. Mm. And there's so, it's, 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 Anyway, so here, here's how I see the transformation towards what I call a do-lead organization typically works. First of all, you've got to have a group of senior leaders who are self-aware and are, who are competent at what they do. So they are leading well. But their self-awareness has led them to think, I really believe we could harness the power of leadership throughout our whole organization.
0: And I love that, Les. Let me pause you there for a second because you work with these organizations and you have systems thinking in mind. I don't. What roughly what percentage of leadership teams, for-profit, not-for-profit, churches, all organizations, what percentage have self-aware leadership in your rough estimation?
1: Well, I have uh, part of the uh, difficulty I have in answering that, David. I'm going to answer, but I want to put a caveat in front of it is my 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 personal experience. I'm so I'm going to talk from observation. But my personal experience is very um, impacted by self-filtering. So most of the, of the leaders who approach me mm. to help me work with them aren't necessarily self-aware or they wouldn't have reached out in the first place. Makes so sense. I've got this world that I work in where it's like 98% and the other 2% are people who thought I was actually the lead singer in a pop group called the Bay City Rollers, which is a whole <laughs> other story. <laughs> and, there was a Les
0: McCune. I checked that. Your alter ego. <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> I, but my observation is, so the subset of that group is tiny. I, it's like probably between five and 10% of most yeah. organizations. So there's a whole swathe of organizations that just aren't of a size where any of this is really kicked in yet. So if you're a startup, you've got maybe five people, even up to about 10 people a lot of this is just happening so organically by 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 osmosis you just you hire people who are going to be doing this type of thing you want people to ask forgiveness not permission it's really only when you start getting into 15 and certainly by the time you're at 20 people you've got 20 or more people you need this because the natural tendency is not towards duly Uh, leadership. It's towards the heroic, the formal, the structured, you know, you talk about leadership training programs. Who are they for? People we're going to formally call leaders. Mm -hmm. Whoever gives leadership training programs to people who aren't leaders or aren't going to be, well, everybody should, but it should be based on the definition that we're talking about. And And the practicalities of it, there are two places where the rubber hits the road. This is like real world stuff that has to happen. The first thing is you got to get what I call your alignment pyramid, rock solid. And what I mean by the alignment pyramid is if you think of a pyramid and that the peak of it up there are the actions everybody takes every day. Mm -hmm. Every single person in your business takes between 15 and Fifty five oh non-trivial decisions every day. Now those depend on what the job is. For the CEO, do we merge with this company? For a sales manager, do I hire this person? You know, for a purchase a clerk, do I give this di- discount even though they paid a day late? You know, for a janitor, do I do I empty all the trash cans tonight or just a few of them? So non-trivial. Not do I have another cup of coffee? Every single person. You got a hundred people. You got an action cloud of at least. 22,000 uh, actions every day. Way down at the bottom of this pyramid, we've got your mission, vision, and values. Why you started this in the first place. And somehow, those actions, that vague cloud that happens and repeats and respawns every single day and gets bigger every day as you get bigger as an organization, has got to somehow turn wheels that get you closer to your mission, vision, and values. And the way that we do that, well, I want to teach all of this, but we start with our mission, vision, values, and say, here's a series of big goals. Here's this year's goals, next year's goals. Big picture goals, usually revenue, cetera, that sort of stuff. Then we say, oh, well, how are we going to get those? We set some strategies. Then we set some tactics. And you know, we're not going to teach all of that. But here's what happens in 90% of organizations is that pyramid is not linked. There are mm. holes all over it. It doesn't add up. It's not seamless. The strategies don't really connect with the goals or we're doing tactics that we knew two quarters ago aren't really going to make it happen. Mm. Or we're using a toolkit because we never really got to master social media that is missing three or four things we really should. So the whole thing tends to be there, but weak. You've got to tighten that up because you can't empower people, which is what the second literal thing that has to happen. It's not a fancy word, empowerment. I I hate how it's been so drained of value. But really, do leadership is about empowering people to make not-so-random acts of leadership. Any act that will help a group of two or more people get to their common goals. But if your goals aren't rock solid, clear, defined, and joined up, joined up, then all you're doing is getting a whole bunch of donkeys and setting their tails on fire. (laughs) <laughs> That'll be disastrous. So, you know, I I, I hate to say this, but I, I do share it with the, the people that I'm closest to and who I think are mature and adult enough to really take this. And, and you know, you're it in spades, David. I'd say <laughs> to people, do not implement this unless you're absolutely sure that you want what it will do because your people have got to be aligned and they've got to be empowered. And you must do that work first. If you have a group of unempowered, unaligned people and you implement my principles, then you're already not growing business because you've got unaligned, unempowered people will die on its feet. The first thing you've got to do, really get that uh, alignment pyramid tightened up. Your your goals are going to be rock solid. Your strategy has got to be really connected, so on and so forth. And then... You've got to work out what does it genuinely mean to empower people, which is really an enhanced version of delegation. That's what mm. we're talking about here. That's really when it comes down to it, is giving people the freedom and the empowerment to work out what will get this group I'm working with, this team, this project, this division, this, the whole business, whatever my, my domain is, to empower people to work out what will get us closer to our common goals, and then to do that.
0: And you're reminding me of the great importance of purpose and mission, because whatever organization we're talking about, the clearer the mission is, then obviously the easier it is to have alignment around that mission. And whether it's picking stocks where I'm looking at the mission statement of the company before I pick the stock, because I want to see if it's real and authentic, if it's stated and if people seem to be paddling that same direction or not, you know, Tesla's mission, a lot of people don't know this probably, although purpose junkies probably do. Tesla's mission stated to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That is the actual mission statement of Tesla. And I think it's authentic. And they happen to have chosen cars and higher end cars really as their MO. But the purpose of Tesla, anyway, accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And if you have everybody aligned around that, and then you're empowering them. They're definitely not donkeys running around their tails on fire. A great image. Les, thank you for that coaching. You're not my formal executive or leadership coach. I recognize the great benefit of these people in the world, and I can see how well you do by your clients. I did want to give you a quick compliment as a writer. You're a very spare writer. I think part of writing for the Do Books series is you can't waste words. And hmm. it's not just true of Do Lead, it's true of all of your work, but I enjoy your combination of storytelling on the one hand, but then also a real respect for readers' time. Uh, and so a, a Hemingway-like terseness that I appreciate about you, Les McKeown. Thank you. You know, you tell two stories toward the end of your book. You tell more than that, but I, w- I wanted to highlight these two because they're both great stories. And one is about the benefit of starting small, and the other is about the benefit of starting big because at the end of Do Lead, you're saying, you know what, I just want you, dear reader, to go do this, to go start. And some people might be paralyzed at that point and think, oh my gosh, but it would be so small. Or, well, what I'm thinking about is so big, I'm paralyzed by that. And you're reminding us you could do either of those. You even say a little bit late in the book, you could start early. Some people do, nine years old, or start late. Grandma Moses, you don't use her as an example, but you recognize the, the appeal. So Really, you're you're saying at the end of the book, just get started now. But if you would please, Les,
1: could you share? Start small and start big. Sure. Uh, yes, as you as you beautifully summarized, I, I, that's all I want to do in the final uh, uh, sequence is to say, look, don't wait for a thing. You know, if, if you've got the right environment, just start from wherever you are, and and. Uh, I take the four compass points that we normally use as reasons to not get started. Mm. You know, I'm too young or I'm too old. So those are the two that that I do at the back of the book. And then uh, alongside that, um, start small and start big. And the start sm- small, start big ones are, are two personal examples. Actually, they're all personal examples, but two very personal examples. Um, and the start small one was way back in in the early days of my consulting work. I then had a Fellow, a fellow entrepreneur as a co-partner and we were going to open our first office abroad we were back in the UK at that time and we had been doing work out in uh, the United States and we needed to open a permanent office in San Francisco and we were, look, we were hiring uh, trying to hire somebody to manage this but the 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 job description was such a mishmash of needing this person was going to be on their own they needed for technical reasons to do with the work that we did they needed to come from northern ireland but we were sending them out there because of the age they were they were likely to be doing this as pretty much their first job or, or very soon thereafter. And yet we were asking them to lead an office that was gr- going to grow very fast. So they had to be able to do the really gritty stuff that they're going to have to find the office. I mean, it was literally a greenfield start. They'd find the office, negotiate the lease, staff at hire. Oh, it was a huge range of stuff. And we, Will and I set a week aside and I can still recall that week and I still get the shivers. We'd got to about Thursday and we'd seen so many people and we were you know, we were almost, you know, in the fetal position because nobody fitted. And our then joint chaired uh, secretary, we call uh, Alicia back then, um, we'd say executive assistant, a young girl straight out of college, and that's what she was doing. And she came in and did what she did. She had done it, I think, five times every day, Monday through Thursday, which was we finished an interview. So she came in, she gathered up our notes, which she would, take off and type while we were interviewing the next one. So we could read our notes. She refreshed our coffee and then she'd sit down for five or 10 minutes. And she was the one who had done the pre-interviews for us. And she'd give us her feedback on the person we were about to see based on her interaction with them. And it was, it, it still kills me now that it took us to Thursday afternoon when we would interviewed <laughs> about 20 people. When Will looked at me and he said, are you Office manager for San Francisco has been walking in and out of here for the last four, and he didn't even get to finish this sentence. As soon as I said, Alicia, not her real name, I changed it yep. <laughs> for all those reasons, had been conducting far from random acts of leadership for four days in front of our eyes. Group of two people trying to achieve their common goals. She had been facilitating that all the way along. And she'd been doing it in the exact ways we needed somebody to do it in the office. So she got the job and she was there for many, many years, had a lovely time, met her, uh, uh, then became her husband out there, um, uh, grew a, a marvelous office for us. Uh, and that was a superb success story. So, you know, she started, she didn't even know she was doing it. She did refilling the coffee cups and giving us a few comments. Perfect example. <laughs> Uh the other story is one and I'll, I'll I'll front end the back what uh, doesn't come till towards the end of the story in the book. Um at the time that I was living back in uh I was born in Belfast, and I grew up during the 30-year civil war that we had there, mm. which was a fairly brutal um uh war in which we went through one period of what were called tit for tat killings. So this is a conflict between Protestants on the one hand, Catholics on the other and we had a terrible uh, particular summer where essentially what would happen is one group would go find one member of the other group just an innocent bystander and and shoot them one night and then there'd be a tit-for-tat killing the group would Go find somebody else. And at that point, my sister was uh, a youth leader in a denomination that would identify her as being in one of those tribes. And totally out of random, uh, no reason, just that she was the last one to lock up her church building uh, very late one evening and was therefore alone and vulnerable. A terrorist from the other tribe uh, just stepped up, put a gun at her neck, and shot her. And she stayed on a. she was paralyzed from the neck down and in a coma and she stayed on life support for three weeks and then the life support that turned off and she died. And it was a, it uh, was a catalyst in what had been a horrendous period. Uh, it was just such a, uh, a gripping emotional story that 3000 people turned up at her funeral. I mean, nobody knew, knew her. She was just my sister. She was like 20 years of age. Um, but there was this massive outcry. And to cut a very long story short, my mother, who's a classic Belfast, if any of our listeners are from Northern Ireland, they'll know this image immediately, like a little blue collar woman who had just held down strange job after strange, you know, whatever she could do to put money on the table. Um, No, uh, My then daughter would would be the first that would ever go to college in our family. We had, you know, she had no background in anything. She, over a space of a year, got, to talk to the guy who was the head of the terrorist group. And I could name him and many people would know his name. He's still alive and he's a member of the, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll not give any identifying information. And she went to see him. She was bundled up in the back of a taxi cab, blindfolded, driven around for three hours, and oh. came to see this man, talked to him for a few hours. I had brought my uh, sister's Bible, to, uh, just wanted to know why would he give instructions for something like that to happen and uh, there was not really much of a meeting of mine but he was a, a very uh, pleasant uh, and to really shorthand the story as she was leaving he said you know what you're the only person you're the only and then he named the tribe that we're from pr- protestant or catholic i don't want um, right. to uh, put this on anybody and you're the only one from that group i've ever talked to would, would you come and talk to me again and they built a friendship she introduced him through a group that she linked up with to the leader of the group on the other side. And so now we have the two people who are leading the two tribes at Civil War. And if I mentioned both their names, one of them's now deceased. Everybody who was involved in that would know who they are. They met in a brokered conversation in a little seaside town in Northern Ireland. My mother stepped out of the picture and it was two years later, but two years later, the, the Easter agreement was signed the peace agreement in northern ireland and i'm not saying my mother had anything to do other than being a way in which the two sides got involved in very complicated discussion and i just posit that as here's this woman late 50s nothing big in her life had ever happened and she went big she went big at a time when she had the opportunity to do it so i just encourage people start small start big
0: and i am in awe In awe of that story, I love both stories, and I'm so glad that you told those lessons. Thank you for sharing that. But how can it not give somebody goosebumps to hear what you just shared and to be reminded that um, I'm not sure your mother was ever on a magazine cover for this, and nobody was saying she's the CEO of anything. It's a perfect example of leadership for all of us. All of us are capable. Not everybody steps up, though, and. In many cases, because we thought leadership was for someone else, right? It's not me. How could I do that? But when put in situations, sometimes catastrophes or crises, uh, as you say elsewhere in Do Lead, which is a beautiful book. I hope everyone will read it coming out of the conversation this week. Um, Character usually does show up. Real shows of character really do show up in in crises or failures. Um, It's easy. All of us on the winning side, we can smile and, you know, shake hands with the other team and, Add a boy, add a girl, everybody around us, and maybe tip the usher on the way out when we win. But when we lose... We see character, and when we lose a family member and uh, you tell that story, I just, I'm just i grateful that you told that. Thank you, Lessa. Uh, it's a beautiful book, Do Lead, and all of us should probably read Do Scale, too, and I know some already have and probably will as a result of this conversation. Let me close, Les, by simply asking you for a book recommendation or two. You're somebody who's written a number of very good books on the topics of business, scaling, and leadership. You already talked about your admiration for Drucker, even though we shot him down with a 2.1 at the start of the conversation. It reminds me, by the way, how I always treated Jack Bogle, because I felt just the same way about Jack Bogle. Such deep respect for the man and what he did on this earth. And the only bone I ever had to pick, and we had... we. Talked about on this podcast and other places. And it was always good natured, as he thought there was no benefit to picking individual stocks. You should always just index every time. And of course, at the heart of everything that I've done and stand for in our company is the idea that choosing does matter and picking stocks that are, are the better companies, not the worse ones, that are doing things that fit with you and your vision of the future. That's worth doing. And so that was always a bone to pick we had. But outside of that, total admiration for the man who understood the importance of. Of character, okay. Maybe I've stalled long enough for you last for you to come up with a little bookshelf that we could assemble as a consequence of listening to you and thinking about what would I want to read next.
1: David, I, I, I gotta say, I get asked um, a version of that so often. I'm always so, uh, I'm so disappointed for the listeners because <laughs> of my inability. And really, what I should do is just go find a couple of titles. That I haven't even read. But here's the thing I I don't read in the business world for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Uh, One is because I'm a total plagiarist. I don't mean to be, but I read something on Monday and then I think I thought it up three days later. And so I try to stay away from that. Yeah. Um, secondly, I, I, I'm not joking when I said what I said about Trucker, uh, I read all of his stuff and a whole bunch of the classics uh, when I was a lot younger. And what I discovered maybe 15, 20 years ago was business books were now being written to prove out a theory. So somebody would, I, I think it started with In Search of Excellence, which I'm not knocking it as a book, but we all know what happened to the examples that were uh, Tom Peters used in that. And um, I just feel that business writers have got a, they've, they've got a dog in the hunt. And so, and I am going to recommend some books. I i, I tend to read in history. Yeah. I read biographies of non-business people uh, and, uh, I, I read a lot around, um, the, uh, uh, what might be called general physiology, just what makes us tick as people and as human hmm. beings, because I see so many principles over and over and over again that come out of a source. That's not trying to sell me a principle to use in business. Am I making hmm. sense? Yeah. So sure. I'll, I'll share what I'll share what is worth. You asked it. So I'm going to tell you, uh, the two books that I have on my bookshelf at the moment, I usually got like 20 that are, you know, folded at an open spot, ready for me to get to. But the two I'm working through at the moment are um, a, a book, an illustrated book about the Battle of Crecy, C-R-E-C-Y, which was um, part of the Hundred Years' War in 15 something or other. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the 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 main thing that comes out of that was the inability of the, it was England versus France that, that was, you know, they just fought each other like a gazillion times in the mm-hmm. 14, 15, 1600s. The inability of France to realize that the uh, British uh, mastery of the longbow meant that just the way they were going to set this battle up meant they were dead in the water. And, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, just a, as a story in and of itself, but in a story of recognizing innovation, Recognize where your competitors going to get you. It's uh, it's really really good, and I'm on about my ninth biography of Genghis Khan, mm. and uh, Genghis uh, K- Khan and the and the Golden Horde, which actually his group was not called the Golden Horde. The Golden Horde was his, uh, I think it was his grandson's version of the marauding uh, Mongols. Did a fascinating thing. They built what was then and for a very long time the largest empire ever built without once building a city. They never built a city. They wouldn't live in cities. They lived in yurts. They called themselves the men of the cloth because they lived, not because they were, you know, in any way religious, but because they lived in cloth buildings. And their ability to innovate, uh, how they would siege cities, but never, ever. Built one, and yeah. I, you know, I just, I, I feel I learn so much more from those sources than I do from reading a business book. Where I just so often feel like I'm being told what I'm meant to believe.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate that. In fact, that's my own approach. I've read very few investing books, even though I've written. I think I may have ri- written more investing books than I've than I've read because I would much rather read outside of the discipline than pull in ideas and mashups. And, bounce one idea off of another and all of a sudden it sparks up a new way to think about investing. So I completely can relate. And I'm sure a lot of those listening to us at this point uh, have the same feeling in life. Yeah. So the, the more widely we we read and the more broadly read, I'm, I'm much more grateful for that recommendation less than your favorite book on business scaling, which by the way, you've written yourself, so it wouldn't be news. (laughs) That's, That's the one I would recommend. Well, Les McCune, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was a really wide-ranging, fun conversation on the topic leadership that uh, gets as much ink spilt over it as any other topic I can imagine in, in the business world. And yet it's a word that has tended to wander from its initial roots and means too many things to too many people today. So Les, I love the big picture approach and the democratizing approach that you've given. You've, you've given us all leadership that we can aspire to, and in fact, enact right upon conclusion of this podcast, because that's the whole spirit of it. Thank
1: you, Les McCune. Thank you, David. It's been a delight to be here, and thanks, everybody. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.